Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with Leo Flowers. If you're like me, quarantined, locked up, <laughs> not locked up, but that's what it feels like, right? Um, There's it, it, so many challenges and, and obstacles. I have received so many messages from people feeling like a burden, uh, feeling like they're isolated, to feeling hopeless. Uh, However, if you go to thrivewithleo.com, I can coach you from feeling like a burden to feeling like a blessing, from feeling isolated to feeling connected, from feeling hopeless to feeling hopeful. Go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching, and we will get through this together. With that said, Let's get into the episode. Hey, Leo. <clears throat> How's it going, man? Fantastic. Am I pronouncing your name right? Tariq? Uh, Tariq. Tariq. Ta- yeah. Tariq Trotter. Yes, sir. Part of why I'm excited to have you on is there's so many artists who are struggling with uh, uh, mental health issues from uh, depression and uh, substance abuse and all those different things. And and through your art and creativity, you've you found a way to manage all that. Can you, can you take us through that journey? Yeah. Um, man. So where should I start? Uh, you know what? Let's go. Let's start with the, uh, with the, with the rapping, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you were in college. Yep. Okay. And- so yeah. Um, I was in college back in Oh nine. This would have been my sophomore year. And, um, I'll just take you straight to like one of the craziest days of my life. Um, so it was, a a morning in December. I can't remember the exact date, but it was December of Oh nine. I had found out that morning that I had made the basketball team. So I walked on, it was a, a little D two school. Um, I'd also found out that, um, a couple hours later that I would not be able to attend school anymore. And then a couple hours after that, I had found out that my, my parents were being, uh, pretty much evicted from the spot that we were living at back in New York. And so it was just like a, it was a wild morning. And just to give some context behind, uh, walking on the basketball team and why it was a big deal for me personally, uh, was because the year prior, my freshman year, I had like an agreement with the coach, you know, where he pretty much said like, I wasn't good enough to play yet. And so, um, I could, you know, beat a water boy for the first year and kind of just like red shirt. That way I didn't waste a year of eligibility, even though I wasn't good enough to play. So for 365 days straight, and I mean that with no exaggeration and not one day missed, I was in the gym every single day working on my game so that I would be good enough to actually make the team the following year. So a lot of work went into this day that I'm describing to you where I found out that I finally made the team. Um, and that also ties into my goals at the time, which you know were to play basketball professionally, essentially. So, um, once that happened, uh, man, I was just 
I was on like a, the emotional roller coaster. My day started off on a high, you know, finding out I made the team. A couple hours later, I found out I wouldn't be able to attend school anymore because I got caught up financially. So the president, the 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 um, the coach of my basketball team, he set up a meeting with the president of my college. So me and this lady, we met directly. Um, and the, the purpose of the meeting was to try and figure out a solution for me financially, maybe through some sort of academic scholarship or something. Cause I had a 3.8 GPA. I was, you know, doing everything I was supposed to. And essentially the meeting lasted probably like 45 seconds, man. I went in and she essentially said, there is nothing that I can do for you. And that was the end of that meeting. Then a couple hours later, I get a call from my mom saying there was a letter on our door. As soon as you said that, you know, I already knew what that meant because it wasn't the first time, like throughout, throughout my childhood with my mom, this had happened a few times, uh, but the landlord was just, uh, you know, saying that we, we need to leave. <laughs> so uh, that night, for some reason, I had an inclination to, to like write a song about it. And it was weird because prior to that moment, I, I swear on everything, I never grew up wanting to be a rapper. I had no rapping experience. This wasn't something that I like dabbled in previously. Uh, but for some reason, the song Fear by Drake, the, the instrumental like resonated with me so much. And so I just threw it on. I started writing about what I was going through at the time. And I uploaded a video of me rapping it to like my Facebook page. And then a couple of people caught wind of it and they were like, yo, you need to take this seriously. And that was how it began. Wow. I, I, I mean, what a day and uh, what a story. And, and what's, but what's beautiful is that you know, a lot of times when we see people's successes, we don't see the 365 days that went into uh, achieving such a thing. And uh, a, a lot of times if, we, if we're able to peel back and see all that hard work, um, people realize, oh, you know what? I don't want that. If I have to do all that work, if I have to show up every day to the gym and, and practice mm -hmm. so my crossover and all this, uh, I don't think I want that. But when you see the bling and the limelight and and, and per people walking out on, uh, uh, you know, out into the arena or the stage or whatever, everybody <laughs> wants that part. Nobody wants the hard work part, you know. And and so yeah. uh, it's a testament to you that you know, with no one watching, you know, you're in the gym practicing in the dark, and 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 that and that's where champions are made, and that's why you had a, a three point eight GPA. Congratulations. <laughs> on that um but but of course like the the the, be the main beauty of this is that you took that pain and you channeled it into something uh positive uh and it which was was writing a song and and what was that song about that you wrote what was it that you what was the rap about man it was it was literally about what we're talking about right now it was like it was about that day and what I was going through. And um, it was about the tears that I didn't necessarily want to let out from my eyes. Um, kind of like that, you know, that song cry record by Jay-Z. Um, it was just things that I was going through emotionally as a, 
as a very young man. And man, it's just crazy because I like had to write that song. It, it wasn't like a question. I, I didn't have to think about it, but like the emotions were so crazy um, within that I had to figure out a way to, to get it out. And the, the song, yeah, it was, it was about the phone call from my mom and um, making the basketball team and just like doing all this hard work. And at the time, you know, being frustrated, I'm like, hey, this was all for nothing. Um, and it was just venting, you know? Yeah, you know, because a lot of people would be like, you know, the, the story that we get so often is just suck it up and 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 get over it and uh, or whatever. And but the beauty, other beauty of what you're saying is that you told your story. You didn't make up. You didn't. You didn't rap about you know guns and, and selling drugs or something that you mm-hmm. thought would sell. You you rapped about what you were going through, your specific experiences. And it resonated with people. It yeah. resonated. You know, like you said, your friends were like, yo, man, you got to tell the people this. And, and I bring this up because so many people have stories that they don't think deserve to be told, that they don't think deserve to be written about or, oh, or painted or, or a movie. That is a or, fact. And uh, that is a fact. I don't know why I'm getting this echo on the, on the back end. Uh, but, you know, but you did it and, 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 and the, the feedback that you got lets you know that you're supposed to uh, uh, share that story. So that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Can you take us back? I want to backtrack a little bit because you said this is not the first eviction notice that you received. Mm-hmm. Can you can you go back to the to take us through your childhood? Did you grow up with both parents? You have you have ten siblings. Take us back through that journey. Yeah. So I'm an only child. Um, I do have two stepsisters on my father's side, uh, but the only child from my father and my mother and, um, my parents had consciously separated, like, I think like right around the time I was born or even maybe a little bit before. So they, you know, they already knew what it was when I was born. Uh, so I grew up with a a single mom. Um, I did have, my dad had court ordered visitation rights. So I was able to see him on the weekends. Um, but for the most part, uh, was with my mom. And when I was first born, I don't know that my mom's parents were completely in agreement with her having a child so young. Cause I think my mom was 19 when she had me. Um, which is like nothing now, <laughs> you know, parents these days, sometimes it, it, it'll happen at an even younger age. Um, but yeah, anyways, it was, it was just me and my mom and she was in the midst of getting her life together, partially, partially because of me. And so she was going from job to job and we were also going from, shelter to shelter when I was first born, because when I was born, my mom didn't have her own place. Um, there was like a little bit of a situation that had happened where she wasn't able to stay with her parents anymore. And so, yeah, man, me and my mom, we were just moving around from shelter to shelter during my like early childhood ages. And my memory of that is somewhat vague, but I do remember certain objects like 
this crib that I used to have and this chair that I used to have. And I used to like climb on top of it and get in trouble all the time. And I'm like four years old at this part of my life that I'm speaking of. So again, my memory is very vague, but after that, you know, to, as I got a little bit older, maybe towards like six, seven, um, my mom's life was also improving. So she got, you know, better jobs that were able to get us into better living conditions. Um, but it wasn't ever enough to completely master like what we needed to do financially, especially growing up in New York city, which, you know, it's, it's hella expensive now, but it's, it's always been kind of expensive. So we had moved around Brooklyn a lot when I was younger. Um, I actually ended up living in four out of the five boroughs of New York city. That's how much we moved. And that was before I even got to high school. So I'm like a true city kid because of that. Um, but yeah, being financially strapped, man, that was just something that, uh, that was just the way life was. All that moving around school to school, borough to borough, how, what, what was going through your head? Like, how are you processing? Like, was this fun for you? Was it normal to you? Was it no big deal? What, what was that like for you emotionally, mentally? Yeah, I'd say I think you you hit it right on the head when you said it was like it was normal for me, because as a child, you don't you know you're you know you're going through life and what's happening is like what's happening. So, as a child, I probably just assumed that that was just the way that it was, and I didn't know of anything, you know, better. Um, so. I don't even know how much I can speak to what I was going through emotionally, but here's what I can say. My relationship with my mother and the bond that we have, it was, it was built during this time. And whatever I couldn't feel personally, I could feel through my mom, through my mom. So there are like specific nights where I remember me and my mom like sitting on the kitchen floor and I'm crying because she's crying. And in that same memory, there's a, a, <laughs> a big ass roach, you know, walking across the, the other side of the kitchen floor. Um, and there's, you know, leaky ceilings and there's, there's a famine, you know, me and my mom like actually went through a famine when I was, when I was nine years old, I think, where like we literally had no food or water for like a couple months. We had to go to the church and our church ended up uh, helping us out and they gave us a bunch of cans of peanut butter. So for like, I think like two months, all me and my mom were living off of was like literally peanut butter. And as a kid, again, like how much can I actually tap into as a kid emotionally? Like I didn't know that this was like such a like heart wrenching thing. Like, but when my mom cried, I knew I didn't like that. So my emotions weren't necessarily connected to what we were going through, but more so like seeing my mom go through it. Right. It's it's like you're, you're a kid and all you want to do is, is make her pain and her tears uh, go away. Yeah. 
And, and that's a that's a heavy burden to feel as a kid. To you know, here you are, just a kid, and 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 yet you feel the weight of your mom and uh, wanting yeah. to make that go away. And uh, I'm I'm sure you still. I would imagine you would still take some of that with you. Oh man! So just to to fast forward just a little bit, you know. Currently, right now, I'm living in Arizona. It's been like three years, and I was living with my mom up until like, you know, mid twenties. And could I have moved out previously? Like, yeah, but I was like, in my mind, I had like this self-limiting belief where it was like, my mom didn't leave me when she was a single mom, and it was just me and her. So how could I like leave her? And it took a while for me to shapeshift my perspective in that regard. But like, I absolutely still hold on to those memories. And it's like, again, that the bond that I have with my mom to this day was built during those times in my childhood. So it's going to be something I, you know, I carry forever. Well, you know, and, and to grow up moving around and to, to go through a famine of, of just peanut, I can't even, I mean, if you don't have running water, I mean, it's, it's, for me, I'm just like, are you choking on peanut butter for too much? Like, <laughs> how, how are you? How are you getting peanut butter down without the agua, without the jelly, you know, without the milk, the leche? Yeah. Um, but but right. but then to also uh, pull yourself up by the straps and 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 even just even to be even thinking about college and to go to college. What gave you hope? What what were you what were you latching on to where you're like, I'm gonna go to college and 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 do something? I think it was just like changing changing my mom's life. You know, and it's man, this is like one of those things too, man. I so I I almost talk about it too much <laughs> in my music. Like you'll hear my mom mentioned a lot and it's because like, <laughs> that's what I went through. And aside from a few things, so here's what I will say. My, my mom, you know, the name Tariq, um, which is actually like an Arabic name and I'm, I'm not Arabic, but, um, the meaning in Arabic is, I believe it's morning star, but another translation for it is leader. And so she's always like ingrained that in me when I was young, like you are a leader, you're meant to be a leader, you're a leader. It was like this affirmation that she was programming into my mind long before I could actually understand what it meant. And so a byproduct of her doing that was me, as I grew up and the older I got, I just had like this innate desire to do something great. And I hadn't, you know, I hadn't molded it yet to like where I have it now, but I just knew that like the life that we were living and like what I had seen my mom go through and my family in general, I, I just knew that there was like something more out there. There's something bigger that it didn't like have to be this way. Um, and if you're, cause like, if you're, if you're from the mud, like the way I am, it's weird how like the culture will like normalize it. Where like, you know, I've heard like 
my grandma say, you know, we're just doing the best that we can. This, and it's the truth that like, you, you know, you do the best that you can, or rather you do the best that you know. So with me, my driving force was like exploring what else is out there. And so now I've got to this point where like, because I, I know more, now I just want to do more. You know, you, you you mentioned when you're from the mud. I've never heard someone phrase it like that. Can can you speak more to that? Yeah. So, okay. I believe that life does present an equal amount of opportunity to everyone, no matter where you're from, no matter who you are, race, you know, whatever. However, the thing about that, there's like a caveat there where it's like you have to drive yourself to meet that opportunity halfway. Now, some people are going to have a very smooth paved road to the opportunity. So they'll drive and it's no problem. So now when I say the mud, what I mean by that is like where I'm from, it's not a smooth paved road to meet that opportunity. It's actually like it's quicksand. It's, it's heavy. You got to like, you know, lift your leg up with your hands and, and like manually pull yourself forward. You might even drown in the mud sometimes. It's dirty. It's disgusting. A lot of bad things happen. People around you don't make it. Your vision could get cloudy because you got, metaphorically, you've got mud in your eyes and it's so heavy and the weather is so bad that you don't even feel like moving forward anymore. Like you might just stay in it. And then the people around you who are also in the mud, right? Cause now there's a traffic jam in that mud. I hope I'm not losing you with this, this metaphor, but now there's a, there's a traffic jam in that mud. And you know what, how people react emotionally when there's traffic in real life, it's the same thing in the hood. Everybody's frustrated. People start doing things that they normally otherwise would not do. And it becomes like this very ugly place. And in order to get to the opportunity, that equal opportunity that does exist in life, you've got to make it out of that mud first. And a lot of people don't make it out the mud, like literally or mentally. And, you know, just to to speak to my point on that, like the, my perfect example, bro, I have a one childhood friend from, from Brooklyn because I moved around so much. I don't even really have childhood friends. Um, a couple of years ago, this friend comes to me and he says, he's like, yo, how do you talk to white people? And I remember being like, <laughs> what, what do you, like, what are you talking about? It's just, it's, it's conversation. We're just people. But I, that was the first time I really got smacked in the face by the law of relativity, which to me, you know, it taught me that two people can come from the same circumstance and one can make it out farther mentally than the other person. And that's something that the mud does to you. Like the, the hood will do to you, or, or it doesn't even have to be just like the hood, you know, and in Syria, it could be the, the, the constant war and bombs that you're experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. Like there's so many different versions of the mud, but what I mean by that is just like whatever your dark place is and like what you you had to like come from and, and push through in order to get just to the point where you can now see the opportunity and take advantage of it. 
Man, I, I love that. It's true because, you know, I'm from Chicago, North Side, and, and I had mm-hmm. so many friends who grew up in similar circumstances. Single parent, I grew up with, you know, my mom. Uh, my, mm-hmm. my dad was, uh, he, he was, he was there, but not there. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and to see how many different paths in life that we, we all took uh, when we all yeah. at, at least just for my circle of friends, we pretty much had the same uh, uh, opportunities and, uh, and, and, and just, you know, some people just can't shake it off. You see that with NBA players, where they they get to the league and then, uh, but they they bring the mud with them. They 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 yep. they, they track. And when I say mud, I don't mean hood. I mean people who aren't um, aligned with your current values. Yes, that's what I mean. It's like the the like I love playing in the mud, and so the mud is not a derogatory thing. The mud mm-hmm. is great, and you want to play, but at some point. You have to wash the mud off. It is, there's a certain point where it no longer Back. serves you. There's a certain point where it's time for you to come in the house and, and get cleaned up for dinner. Um, and there's just some people who don't know or don't want to wash it off. They they want to sit at the table with filthy hands. And you're just like, this, this doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work like that, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, man, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> the law of relativity. Is 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 so fascinating. Let me ask you. You know, the to I, I can't imagine. You know, to fast forward again to the basketball team. Uh, no school. You get this notice notice of eviction, and then you know I I know that it, it wasn't as simple as all right. I just wrote a song. There had to be like an emotional uh, spiral. How did you, you know? What was your bottom uh, emotionally? What was like when you talk about going through a depression? What what was the what was the worst of that? Of that particular time, uh, it didn't have to be that particular time. But when when you talk about like uh, you know your 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 battle with depression, uh, what uh, what was what did that look like for you? So, I think I think it would be similar to a, a lot of people's. Not in regard to like the circumstance, but depression. It's like this. Um, it's this very lonely road, where although you might not like literally be alone, right? You can have a hundred people around you. It doesn't matter. You can still be depressed, and so. But that road, what it looks like is um, it looks like no one else can quite understand. You don't really even have a means of communicating it to other people in a way that they will understand. You don't want to communicate it to other people because you don't want their sympathy, which is ironic because you, you know, you're feeling alone, but you don't want people to come and join you in, but in, in the way that they feel bad about it. Um, and it's a place where like you actually need a lot of help. And at the same time, only you are capable of pulling yourself out of it. 
So, and that's, that's, that's like one of the hardest things about depression, right? It's like, we shouldn't be just handling everything on our own, but it's, it's a place in life. It's a, a place in our, in our minds and in our hearts that only we can walk ourselves out of so that we can even be welcome, uh, welcoming and accessible to the help that is out there and around for us. You know, so that, like, go ahead. Okay. No, no, go ahead. What were you going to say? No, I was going to say, it, it, and it makes so much sense because it's not, because it, it does require uh, uh, you to be proactive and to put some effort. And at the same time, it, it also requires a community and, and, and resources and external things to mm-hmm. uh, help get you to that next level. But you have to first be willing to make the phone call, to reach out, to, to write the letter, to, to mm-hmm. express yourself, to be honest and vulnerable and put yourself out there um, in, in, in order for you to take those first few steps so that then others can, can assist you. Yeah. And even, and even before that, right. Cause that's the part where like now you become emotionally available and accessible so that you can, you know, you can get the help and be uplifted by others. But even before that, the, the, the part where like only you can, can climb yourself out. It's like, um, the best way I've heard this explained one of my you know, favorite mentor is this guy named Grant Cardone, where he, his mind, his mindset towards depression, he's like, if you are living a certain type of life and you, you know, you, you hate your life, you don't like what's happening. You don't like your circumstances. He's like, why would you not be depressed? To him, it's like depression. It's a, it's a, it's a good thing because it's a sign that like the innermost parts of your being wants more for you. That's, that's really like when you peel back all the later, the layers and the circumstances and the science and the, you know, what's the, what's going on neurologically, like essentially like you're here in this one place, you know that there's more for you or more that you could be doing or something different that could be happening. And because there's a a huge significant gap in between those two places, you are therefore depressed. So before you can even become emotionally available, I think the process to getting to that place is, is first admitting that you are unhappy with where you currently are, what you, or what you're currently doing or who's currently around you. What's happening. Like you got to like truly admit and then take responsibility for it. Not in a way that it's like, it's your fault, right? Cause there's also a difference between fault and responsibility, but you've got to like, say like, it's my responsibility to dig myself out of where I am right now. It's not my fault that I'm here. Maybe I had like, uh, you know, an unlucky, an unlucky draw of the cards. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe I've had like parents that didn't do everything that they could for me. You know, maybe I've, I've been evicted a lot as a child, you know, or I've had like a traumatizing childhood and none of this is my fault, but it's my responsibility now to get out of it. And the reason why a lot of people, I believe, 
and I'm, you know, by no means a, a therapist or a scientist in this matter, but I believe that people are not, they're not yet taking responsibility. And it takes a while to get to that point where you're like, all right, this is, it's not my fault, but it's my job to change my life. Man, that was so beautifully said. I love that. It's not my fault, but it is my responsibility, right? It's not your fault where you were raised. It's not your fault who your parents were. It's not your fault that you were abused uh, or what have you. It's not your fault that, you know, <laughs> you made the team and then didn't have the money. It's like, but it is your responsibility <laughs> yeah. to yep. to figure it out. And 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 I think that for for some of us, is I know especially for me, I have to get out of this. Is like I, I feel like that the response and or the answer should be immediate, or mm-hmm. you know, with but it takes it takes a, it takes planning. It takes a strategy. It takes yeah. It, it takes a long term uh, vision. Um, it's like that movie Shawshank Redemption where your boy on the first day of jail was like, I'm not going to make it. And and for, I don't know, 15, 20 years was just yep. chiseling away at, at that wall until he finally escaped into a beach with his money and, and his yeah. boat, you know. But it took him 20 years. But it took him saying, you know what, it's not, it, it wasn't his fault that he was in jail, but it was his responsibility to find his way out and uh, and not be deterred. I love that. Yeah. And that looks like going yeah. to get therapy, going to get a coach, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, whatever, journaling, writing a song. So yeah. when you started to, so I, I want to go back to this, to this story. So did you finish college? Did, did you, were you able to find no. the finance? That was, that was, that was it. Nope. That was, that was it. Um, so it happened during the winter so no one was around except for the sports teams that play during the winter. Um, thankfully, I was allowed like two more weeks on the campus to, you know, stay in my dorm since no one was there. Um, so, yeah, I stayed there for about two more weeks before finally coming back home, um, to, you know, to meet up with my parents and then help with the move to um, Connecticut. But that was that was the last of college that I'd ever seen, um, and, and I'm actually happy because I, I made the friends that I needed to make while I was there. They're still my best friends to this day, and I, most importantly, I learned what I needed to learn during that time. And my life has taken a completely different course that doesn't need college at all. Here's what I love is uh, that for, in your childhood, you mentioned that you didn't have any uh, childhood friends, maybe one. And, Mm -hmm. but now in college and you didn't, and not having not even finished college, you've made a group of friends who uh, you feel like are now your lifelong friends. Yeah. Yeah. So what has been the trajectory post college, right? You you wrote the song, you got a rap. And and Mm -hmm. so what happens? Okay, so <laughs> so after college, um, I moved back home with the parents. We moved to Connecticut, and this is like, like the beginning of of. Uh, well, I still didn't even know at this point that I was like going to be a rapper. Like I I didn't know. I was just you know I was kind of just playing it by ear, taking things on a day to day. And when you move to a new state, you don't have friends, obviously. 
And so this was like a very good thing. And I didn't know it yet, but it was good because, because being that I knew no one on like Friday nights and Saturday nights, I couldn't go out and like turn up, (laughs) you know, like there, there wasn't any, and it's also Connecticut where there's almost nothing to do anyways. It's just like woods and houses and a couple of colleges here and there. Um, because I knew no one, I was forced to stay at home and write music. That's what I did with my time. And that happened for a few months until I finally started like meeting people in Connecticut. Now, during this time, as I'm like writing music, I would take the train, the Metro North, back to New York to record with uh, a friend from college. His name was Christopher Molfetis. I was recording with him at, at his house. I would go stay there for like three, four days at a time. And that's where I recorded my first mixtape called The Tryout which we won't talk about because your, you know, old music is, is embarrassing. Um, but yeah, I started there. If Within a, f- a few months of that, I got a message on Facebook from someone who I'd went to high school with. His name was Benjamin Klein. Now, I did not know Ben when I was in high school. We just weren't in the same like clique or, you know, group of friends. Ben hits me up on Facebook and he's like, hey, I'm actually in college right now, kind of, you know, studying like music entertainment and management. And he's like, I would love to be your manager. And I'm like, yeah, like, let's go. I like that we went to the same high school. I'm somewhat familiar with you. I don't know you. I've never talked to you, but yeah, let, let's do it. And Ben changed my life for the better because he was thinking at a level that in all honesty, I wasn't even ready for at the time, but, um, he pushed me farther than I would have ever, ever gone. So the second that Ben came into my life, um, he made me take music more seriously. He made sure I was in the studio, um, made sure I was always recording, gave me opportunities that I would have otherwise not had if it weren't for him. And so by, and this, so again, this is like 2010 ish now, and by 2014, I was meeting with major record labels. And I mean, what happened? So you're meeting with major record labels. Yeah. So by 2014, I'm getting, you know, kind of good because now I'm, I'm about five years into, you know, creating and, and doing music and I was getting good, but I I didn't have the it factor yet. And so when I went into label label meetings, um, the music was strong. The music has always been strong, but like my image, my swag, my, my purpose in it, it wasn't quite sculpted and defined yet. And so Every time that I went into a music label meeting at the time, it, I just essentially like long story short, bro, I just got curved, you know, like it was, it was like, yeah, it's good. The music is good, but I don't think you're ready yet. And there was one meeting that did stand out. It was a meeting with Atlantic records. We met with the, the, uh, VP of, um, of, uh, hip hop there and, that meeting actually went really well. I remember it was like, it was on a Friday, I'm pretty sure. 
And the way that the meeting ended was her saying that she was going to sign me to what's called the artist and development deal, I believe was the term at the call. It's like A and D. And a lot of artists in the game actually had this type of deal. Um, I think, don't quote me on it, but I think Macklemore had it. And so what happens is like you get signs to the label, but you're not like, you're not signed like a major artist. You're, you're being developed over the course of a few years. And then what'll happen is after a few years, bang, you make like a hit song, like, you know, thrift shop. And then people think you came out of nowhere, but it actually that entire time prior to that, you've had like the development and the resources that a major artist would have. You're just not being like promoted yet. And so that was the deal that she was going to give us. Um, it was a Friday. She was like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write up a contract, um, this weekend. I'm going to send you guys over a number on Monday and let me know if you guys like the number. And so here we are, um, you know, we're, we're on sixth, sixth Avenue in the city. And, uh, I believe like somewhere, somewhere between like 46th and 51st or somewhere around there. It's right next to Radio City Music Hall is where the Atlantic office is. Um, but yeah, me and my management team, we come downstairs in front of this skyscraper, busy Manhattan street. And we're just like screaming at the top of our lungs. Like, yo, we did it. We, you know, we're finally here. Like life's about to change. And of course the first thing I do is like, you know, I, I'm, I'm telling my mom, I'm telling my friends like, yo, we're about to be on. <laughs> Life's about to change. It's crazy. It's on. It's popping. And Monday comes and we get no no answer from this lady. Like, no, we didn't hear from her. So we're like, whatever. We didn't hear from her. That's cool. Tuesday comes. My manager sends over a follow-up email like, hey, um, you know, just circling back to, to see what the status is on the deal and whatnot. Um, no response. Wednesday comes, no response. Thursday, another follow-up, no response. Friday, no response. And ghost. Never heard from her again. And I have no idea like what the reason was behind it. Um, but that was like a, a like very life-defining moment for me because I, I literally thought that you know my life was about to change. And uh, it was just not in a way that <laughs> I thought it would. I, so, I mean, I, I mean, it's got to be so embarrassing because it's like you told your family, you're celebrating. Yeah. I'm sure you're telling, you know, so many people. And mm -hmm. then to be ghosted, like nothing. Ghosted, you man. Know, and, it, you know, it's so funny because we talk about ghosting with just um, in relationships or dating. You know, yeah, exactly. show up and. Uh, but there's also ghosting career-wise, where the the employer uh, mm -hmm. just doesn't call you back, or you know they just yeah. let you go, and you know there's no feedback. Mm -hmm. Did that yep. uh, when 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 you don't get those types of uh, responses, and uh, in, in ghosting happens, does that does that trigger uh, other emotions? Does that question yeah. make sense? No, it definitely makes sense. I would say um, phew, it, it triggered a lot of emotions, right? Insecurity, like, oh, I must not be good enough. Um, anger, 
frustration, embarrassment, you know, sh- shamefulness, um, a lot of things. And it's ironic that you say that because I have this this series of songs called Everything I Am, and it was inspired by a song called Everything I Am by, by Kanye West. Um, and I actually just put out the sixth installment of, of the Everything I Am series like last week. So, you know, we're six songs in, but when I write everything I am, like anytime that happens, and it's essentially just me talking to my fans about like whatever is going on in my life at the time and like how I feel about it. That's what everything I am's are about. But the only time that they end up coming out of me, you know, emotionally is when I have this com- this combination of emotions. And it's usually like a high combined with a low. And that's exactly what had happened after Atlantic Records. The high of thinking I was about to get signed, the low of being completely ghosted and embarrassed in front of like my friends and family in regard to that. Tari, and so I'm sorry, the, is there, are you doing dishes or is, is there, it sounds like there's clanking in the background. Oh, the, oh you hear noise in the background? Yeah. Uh, my bad. I, I, one of my roommates was doing the dishes. I'll, oh, okay. I'll tell him to, <laughs> to, to chill out. My bad. All good. Uh, so you, you went from this extreme high to mm-hmm. a super low, and 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 it, it, you're going through anger, shame, embarrassment. I mean, how do you? So how did you manage all those? Like, how did you express those, and then how did you get yourself back to zero? Um, yeah. So at the time it was everything I am three, that song, um, it helped me a lot. Cause I, I, I put, I like literally put it all on the paper. I talked about the meeting. I talked about, you know, being ghosted and we ended up shooting like a really good video to it. And it's, you know, definitely one of my best records. I actually still say to this day, I don't know if I'll write a better verse than what I wrote on everything I am three. But um, in regards to you know how I handled it, how I handled it specifically outside of writing that song, I I don't even know, man. It was it was tough. Uh, like I'm trying to think of you know what I remember from that moment, but it was tough for me and my team. But it was one of those things where we just knew that we had to keep going, and and that was that you know like i i still gotta create a better life for my mom like i'm just not i'm not like i'm not done yet and i was also shaping my understanding and perception of the music industry and so like eventually i was like i guess this is just like how it is like either i'm so popping that like we make deals happen or you know when you're mediocre or you know just not ready yet um this is like what happens. But one of the toughest things about like the question that you're asking me is because I have like this mature mindset on it. Now I'm trying to think back to how I felt at the time. And I think it was just somewhere in the middle of where I am now and where I was then, where I just knew that like, I still had to do more and like, I'm going to, I'm going to make it happen. And one day that lady at Atlantic is going to regret that (laughs) is going to regret that. Man, I, I mean, I there's a couple questions, and I, and I do want to backtrack a little bit. I have two questions. One, uh, as, as I'm thinking about it, all the moving around from school to school, borough to borough, 
One, was there any bullying that took place in your childhood? And two, uh, was there any uh, substance abuse that, that took place uh, on your part? You seem like squeaky clean, but, you know, can, can you address both of those? Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so in regards to bullying, like, yeah, I was bullied a lot um, up until, I'd say, like, high school. Um because I, I had always been like super smart. So I remember actually in, like in fourth grade, this is the first time I got jumped, <laughs> um, <laughs> got jumped in the schoolyard. I had just gotten switched from like the general education class to um, a more like specialized um, education class. Um, not like special ed, but, but like, you know, the smarter kids, they like made a, a, a group for them and we had like a different set of classes or whatever. So I got moved to this group with the smarter kids and that day in the, the school parking lot, for some reason, like <laughs> my, my former classmates had jumped me because just for like being, I don't know, smart, I guess. Um, so that was an interesting day. Um, and then now when you Brooke, say jumped you mm-hmm. mean like cuz uh, some people don't know what jumped you know I know what jumped is I'm from Chicago so mm-hmm. they they what they waited for you after school they cornered you nah bro this was it was, was it was <laughs> it was it was nah so it was it was fourth grade so i mean you know we're like 10 years old or whatever probably um super young but i remember it was during lunch it was just like it was just like recess so we're out in the schoolyard and I think I was just like playing basketball from what I remember. And I just remember getting like yoked up from behind and, um, getting like dragged by a few kids to like the center of the playground. And then these like kids and classmates, some of them were, you know, my former classmates, some of them were like older kids in the school, but they just started like stomping me out kind of, (laughs) And, um, it was only so much damage that could be done. Cause again, we're like nine, 10 years old, but, um, emotionally and like traumatically, yeah, that played an effect. I remember actually, I remember that week, right. Going back to school. Cause there were only like, I think a few classes throughout the day where I was with the, the, um, the like smarter kids, the rest of the time I was still with like, you know, the, the general, uh, school population, um, I remember being in one class and someone, I don't remember who it was, but they, they had like, they were, they were bullying me again and like saying something. I don't remember exactly what they were saying, but I took the shoelace string out of my, (laughs) out of my shoes and I put it around my neck and like tied it around my neck and started squeezing. And I was like, yo, leave me alone or I will kill myself right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I, I remember squeezing this shoelace. I don't know. This isn't funny. I don't know why I'm laughing. It's just, it's funny to think back on, but I'm like squeezing this shoelace, right? To the point where like, I can actually feel me choking myself. My eyes are starting to get red and watery. And, but like the kids started leaving me, me leaving me alone. They started backing away. And then eventually like the teacher walked in and, and caught me. And so she like grabbed me out of the class and I got in trouble for, for this. So I like, called my mom and told my mom they were going to have to call like Kings County hospital or something 
to get me like evaluated psychologically <laughs> or something like that. Um, and then shortly after I got transferred out of that school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man, I mean, it's funny, not funny, but you know, it's that thing of like, if, if you act crazier than the person attacking you, they'll leave you alone. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so that was like an example of like what I went through. And then even up to going up to like, I think like seventh grade, I remember one day, um, these, these kids, cause there was, so I grew up in Brooklyn, right. in in East New York, Brooklyn, which is a very rough part of Brooklyn. And here's the way I'll put it. It's like, there are, there are kids who like really get caught up in the street life, you know, on, on like the gang side of things and the drugs and, and weapons and whatnot. And then there's kids like me who I was a, you know, a basketball player. That's all I really wanted to do. I just, you know, I was a ball player. And aside from that, my mom was super strict. Like I had to be in the house at a certain time. Otherwise I was, I was getting the belt. Um, you know, she was just like super strict and, so, and I, and I was also like a, a church boy. So I wasn't as like rough around the edges as a lot of the other, um, kids in my neighborhood. And so there was just like a separation there, even like the way that I talk, even now it's like, I'm, you know, I know that like, I'm not like the most hood dude. I'm just, I'm, I'm like from it. So I don't fear it, but I do remember one day specifically in, in, uh, I think it was seventh grade the, these boys in my class, they like chased me home. And like, I had to like take a different route. So they, they wouldn't know where I lived, but like, these were kids in my class, like literally in the same class as me every single day, chasing me, chasing me home, um, to like beat me up or whatever. And so, um, yeah, definitely some bullying. And it's funny that you asked this question. Cause I, I like, I had never really thought back to this. It doesn't like have an effect on me at least consciously. Um, and then to your other question, as far as drug abuse or substance abuse, nah, there hasn't, there hasn't been any on, on my end. Um, I've seen a lot of it in my family. Um, I had a phase later on in life when I was in Connecticut after, after the eviction in college, um, I had a phase where I was like smoking a lot of weed, but, um, that wasn't anything that I could attach to a trauma or, you know, maybe it is. And I just haven't identified that consciously, but I was smoking just because there was really nothing else to do. Right. Right. You know, and and that's a good point that you make it. It's really like your perspective of what happened to you and what you've done versus uh, what actually happened to you and and what's done. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in terms of, you know, like, because I got jumped, too, when I was in the fourth grade. I got jumped in the bathroom. Uh, wow. I think I'm in a gang. I don't know. But mm-hmm. um, but like you said, you're young. You don't know how to process it. And you just, and you, in your head, you just kind of chalk it up to uh, the, that's the, the law of the land. Like there's yeah. people who fight. They get beat up. And, um, mm-hmm. and then and you go back to class. Uh, yeah. and it's not until somebody else is like, well, that shouldn't have happened to you. And you clearly, you know, and then you're like, oh, maybe I should, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right there. There was, uh, it's all, it's all in how you interpret that. Um, let's fast forward yeah, to now. There, 
and just to go ahead yeah i was just gonna say one more thing just in regards to you know your, your your other two questions um i was molested on like five different occasions by five different people as a child too like early early childhood um it even and like man that like that's like a a whole nother conversation you know um but yeah, that happened. And then as a result of that, you know, I took that learned behavior and like, I actually like had passed it on to others as well throughout my childhood. So that was, that was like another thing. Um, so like definitely like some, bu- some abuse and some trauma there in the childhood for sure. Can, can you speak more to the when you say passed it on what what does that what does that mean yeah so like so like as a young kid right I mean I'm talking like I think like the first time that I got molested actually I know for the first time I got molested I was in the first grade so what's that six years old um that was the first time I got molested and then I got molested a few other times after that four more times after that by different people sometimes family sometimes not um I don't like to get into the specifics of, of like names and like who, because just out of respect for those individuals. Um, but yeah, so being molested as a child, which is like this whole world in itself, um, you, you learn the behaviors that are being exercised on you. And so as a result of that, like I started like dry humping other kids as well. And so, um, and thankfully, like, you know, something I eventually grown out of by the time I was like 14, 15. Um, but yeah, it was just like very, very much life impacting. And it was just like, it was like, like the, it's like the, that early childhood discovery and learning about sex from, you know, the dark side where it's not like a conversation with your parents, rather it's, it's someone like touching on you, um, and so you, you don't really know what you're doing, but you're just like doing it. And at the same time, your body is also like going through changes. Yeah. So, I mean, how old are you now? Now I'm 30. So at the age of 30 and, and having all these different experiences, uh, are how are relationships for you? Oh, so relationships for me are, are great. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm in a relationship right now and and this is the last relationship I'll be in. Um, but it didn't get to the point where it affected, um, like, I guess what I'm saying is like, I've healed myself from that part of my life and it was a very lonely road. I didn't have like therapy and things like that. I didn't talk to my parents about, about it, um, until like, you know, more, more recently. Um, but it was like a self-discovery and self-healing road that I had to go on in order to get to the point where it didn't affect like who I am, but more so was instrumental in who I am. Um, I will say this prior to me healing myself from those childhood traumas, the, the effect that it had was I would turn to sex as a means of like dealing with 
my problems in life. So like being broke or going through evictions and, you know, my time in Connecticut and like, you know, after the Atlantic records meeting or just like any struggles that I had, my form of escape from like what I was going through in life was sex. And so in that process, what I realized is that like I was having sex with a lot of women and like not really um, conscious of like the effect that I was having on them emotionally by not really truly being emotionally available and like really cultivating in a, a relationship into like the beautiful thing that it could be. Rather, I was just like using sex as like a means in a form of, of escape. And it was just like, it was like sloppy, bro. Like I got tired of it and I got tired of like hurting people, you know, and just like, I did this thing for a while, like in my early twenties where like, I would like legit, like ghost, go ghost on girls, like just completely cut them off. And there was this disconnect because a lot of them would assume that I was doing it because of something that they did. But what I was actually doing was protecting them from who I was as a person and like the like impure ways that I was using sex as a forms of escape from my life. And I felt like they had deserved better. So I would cut them off so they wouldn't have to deal with me and like my toxicity emotionally at that time. And I know that's super deep, but I just wanted to make sure I was being candid and answering your question. Now, you know, I, it was a period where I went through the same thing where, you know, I would ghost and, and be like, listen, you know, in my head, I'm like, I'm doing you a favor. Like mm-hmm. you, you don't want to be around all this. Like this is this is this is trouble down the road. Is I'm I'm great for a night or a couple nights, but um, I'm 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 saving you. You're gonna thank me later. You're gonna get married, have kids, have a beautiful house, <laughs> and, and and then I'll I'll be able to you know put my thumbs up and be like you know what you only have that because of me because I stepped to the side and uh, and 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 allowed the way for you to to be happy and. Um, and you're right. It it takes a lot of work and self healing to get yourself to a place where you you recognize your value, and that mm-hmm. uh, you're 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 hurting yourself also uh, along the way, and uh, and and not and not giving yourself a chance. So when you say self healing and journey, you said you did it without therapy. I mean, what 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 did that look like for you? I understand the whole mm-hmm. uh, accepting responsibility and saying it's not my fault. But what what more to it was it? What more to it uh, was it than that? So, I think for for me, my self healing journey came through self exploration. So, 2016 was the year that like really changed my life. Um, ironically, no music came out during that year. Um, I had taken kind of like a, a little bit of a hiatus from music because I was making a lot of music and like, I was getting better, but I didn't really know what I was doing with the music yet. I, I was just like, you know, creating cause like my managers had me in a studio every week and I don't know, like it was, I was just making music, but there wasn't like it, it wasn't a purpose. I didn't know who I was as a person. Um, I didn't know what my identity was as a music artist. And there was just like a lot of things that I hadn't figured out and I felt my life moving, but like 
not progressing. And there's like a, a very small subtlety there, the, you know, the difference between movement and progress. And I knew at the time, I didn't understand why yet. I just knew that my life wasn't going to progress until I healed myself and got to the point where I could talk about my childhood traumas on a podcast with Leo. You know what I mean? Like I was just kind of hoarding stuff in. And so 2016, I did this thing called uh, my hundred days. And essentially what it was is I, I created this chart. It was like a hundred day countdown. And the goal of this hundred days was to do something or go somewhere or read something that I had never done, been, or read before. Okay. Or, or, or listen to before I got to do one new thing every single day. That's something I've never, ever done before. And so at the end of the day, I would go to that hundred day countdown. And if I did something that day that I'd never done before, I would do a, a green check mark so that that day was productive. If I didn't do anything new, I would put a red X. Um, and over that course of a hundred days, I did a ton of things that I had never done before. One of them was I had visited Arizona like three times within that, that hundred day period. And it's, you know, I, I live here now, so it kind of all uh, makes sense, but I was listening to music that I had never listened to before. I was seeing movies that I'd never been to before. I was doing weird things like taking the train into the city at like 11 o'clock at night. You know, my mom's like, where are you going? I'm just like, I just need to get out of the house. And I would go to, different peers, um, in the city, not like peers as in friends, but peers as in like water and, you know, like the edge, <laughs> um, like a dock or something. Um, and I would just sit on these peers for hours, man, until like three, four o'clock in the morning. And sometimes I had my headphones and I was writing music. Sometimes I was just sitting there and just looking at the city lights over the water and just, paying attention to details that I had never really like taken the time to like actually sit down, reflect and, and give attention to like the moon shining off of the water at night and like skyscrapers and how they were like actually built by, you know, just men and how big they are and how like little I am compared to them. And I would go to like rooftops of skyscrapers and then look at the rest of the skyscrapers. And I loved looking down at skyscrapers to remind myself that if I, if I take the right steps, I can actually be larger than life. Um, metaphorically, and I liked walking through skyscrapers, you know, through the street and looking at, up at them to remind myself that this isn't about me. I'm a, a part of something much bigger than myself. And and um, I was, you know, just I was like learning who I was. I started to go hiking and I got, you know, lost in the woods once and almost attacked by like a, a pack of coyotes, which ironically, coyotes don't even tr usually travel in packs. But for some reason, this day, the universe had placed this pack of coyotes in front of me and I almost got attacked. So I learned what fear was like in the middle of the woods when no one else was around to save me. And I just like explored, bro. Like I, I like... I read for the first time I picked up a book, like actually picked up a book and read for the first time in 2016. Prior to that, the only other book I had read was Green Man by Dr. Seuss. 
back in like kindergarten. The way I got through school was by using websites like SparkNotes and you know those other ones that give you the summaries of books. And then I would do my homework based on those summaries, but I had never actually read a book. So I, I read and in reading, you know, one of the first books I read was called The Power of Habit. And I learned like why I was turning to sex so much and like why I was doing other things. And I'm like, I'm beginning to understand myself and I'm like, everything that I do, everything that I read, every song I listen to, every place that I go, it's like I'm picking up these bricks and I'm like, I'm like building me, like who I am. And it was like this, this, you know, the, the last, I'd say 2016 and 2019 were just like super transformative, transformative for me because I became the person who you're speaking to right now. And this person who you're speaking to right now had not previously existed prior to 2016. And this was eye-opening to me in so many ways because during this time of like learning myself and exploring myself by building myself, I was also healing myself because I learned more than anything that everything that I had been through in life, every single thing, even like the famine where we were eating just peanut butter, it played a role in the cultivation of like the individual and the, the man who I am right now in this moment. And like that has been like the most lit thing for me, man. It's like the light is not at the end of the tunnel. The light is actually in the tunnel and <laughs> the light is you like you are the tunnel. I am the tunnel. It, you know, I am the, I'm the light. So the more that I can like build myself and acquire information and learn new things and go new places and talk to people I've never talked to and, and do things I've never done and, and hear things I've never heard, the light gets brighter and so now I can see around the tunnel that there's actually blessings everywhere. Everywhere. The issue before is that I wasn't light enough. I, I wasn't illuminating enough to see that like there is so much good around me that like I could flip, you know, being molested into like uh, just having a greater understanding of like empathy and like the traumas that other people go through. And so I was like, you know, hurt, the opposite side of healing, whatever that is, whether it be hurt, whether it be pain, when you're, you're, when you're just sitting in it and the scar is still open, it's because you don't yet understand like why it happened and that it's actually all a part of this greater purpose and even more so on like a smaller scale, it's a part of like the person who you're becoming and who you're shape-shifting into. And so you, it's like you have this responsibility like we, talked to, like we talked about earlier where it's not my fault that any of that stuff happened, but in 2016, I realized the responsibility fi finally. And once I embraced that responsibility to start climbing myself out, the world changed. I saw things that I didn't see before because, again, I was, I was illuminating finally instead of just being in a dark place. You almost made me cry, man. 
when you said the light isn't at the end of the tunnel, it's in the tunnel. What? Come on, son. You're a poor for sure. Yeah, man. That that I was I was so beautiful. And I love that hundred days challenge, man. I think I'm gonna write that down and and and, and take that and give you the give you the credit. I uh, I have a buddy of mine, uh Bronston Jones, who who was on the episode, and every year for his birthday, he will do uh a challenge for every year that he was born. So like when he turned forty, he did a forty day challenge leading up to his birthday. You know, uh, of just 40 different things that, and, and it goes back to your 100 days, it was 40 different things that he's never done. Uh, you know, so he was like skydiving, he ate vegan food, you know, like just doing, just getting out of your comfort zone and mm-hmm. challenging yourself and expanding uh, your awareness. Yes. Uh, but the, you said, you mentioned the book, The Power of Habit. Um, what now can you can you cuz i've read that book can you explain to me how that uh illuminated your your behavior in terms of acting out sexually yeah so the power of habit ultimately what it did for me one is it brought to light that i have habits i know that sounds super silly and super simple but again like it wasn't something that i had previously thought about i didn't think about how like our life is literally a reflection of our habits. Like literally, like, you know how people say, like the saying, I'm not a morning person. Right. That's not, that's not true. That's not like a fact, you know, that, that isn't like, so that isn't something that we found like in our DNA that like our bodies are just more accustomed and like they like to wake up later. That's not true. It's just like we have a habit of setting nine alarms in the morning and snoozing all of them. That's what, like that. That's what we're doing. It's it's not that we're actually not a morning person. So when I read The Power of Habit, what it did for me is it, it brought to light that like every single thing that I was doing in some way, shape or form, a, a lot of it, you know, maybe 90% of what we do is actually just like a, it's like this automatic like reflex like almost, almost everything about us. Like, you know, if, if I said to you, like, if I said you should wake up at 3am every day, right? Like what's the first thing that goes through your mind? Like your mind has a habit, right? That it, it, it goes straight to this place. It's like a default. If, you know, if I, if, if I said to like the average person, you should go vegan, what's the first thing that goes to their mind? Oh, I could never, I could never give up cheese. I can never give up bacon. You know, it's, it's like, these are all it's literally habits. What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Is it, is it like pick up your phone? Is it go to the bathroom? Like we all have like this routine. And so the book, what it made me do was like evaluate myself. So I'm like, what is, what are my defaults? And like, I started paying attention to everything that I do. I also started like looking at other people. I'm like, ah, you're, that's a habit what you're doing. And I'm looking at myself like, that's a habit. I'm, why am I even doing this right now? What, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And I started to question everything. And so by questioning everything, especially in regards to myself, I had to answer certain questions for myself. So like, why am I having like sex so much? And then like, I regret it like right after, like, I I didn't even really want to do that. Like, why am I doing that though? And so 
in regards to, you know, just sex in general, it was just one of the questions that I had asked myself, like, why am I doing this? When like my mom taught me that sex is like a sacred thing and that there's so much more to it than the average human even understands. And like the feelings and like the anatomy between you know between bodies when sex is happening like there's there's so there's so much to that that like a lot of us don't even we, we think we understand but we do, we have no idea like the exchange of energy that happens when when two people are having sex like you know there there's a lot that goes into it and so when i read the power of habit it just made me think of everything i was doing on a larger and like deeper level so i, I wanted to question everything and i had to like find those answers for myself you know, it's so true because right now I'm struggling with getting up at um, I'm, I'm I'm deciding if I want to wake up at 5 a.m. every morning to uh, post a workout. Uh, I do a Facebook and Instagram live, but I do it whenever I work, wake up. But of course, you know, uh, it's better to be consistent with the time. But I'm like, mm-hmm. Man, ain't no ain't no way I get up at 5 a.m. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. But, you know, really it's about changing my habits and figuring out, well, if I'm going to get up at five, what time do I need to be in bed? And then, you know, it's Mm -hmm. a domino effect of habits that that, uh, would have to change. But nothing major um, and nothing that would hurt, only help. So uh, You actually just mentioned something interesting too, right? Because here's like the, the key to life right here. So you mentioned in this particular order, you said that, um, you're trying to decide if you're, if you're going to wake up at five and you know, you do the, the Facebook and Instagram, um, live things for your workout. And, um, but you only do it when you, you know, when you're actually working out. And then and the last thing you said was, then I like, I, I you know, I, I like talk to myself and I have this thought where like, man, you know, I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. Right. That's like, the, that was the last thing that you said. And so this is exactly what like everyone does in life. Right. We like let life happen first and then we talk to ourselves last. So like life will happen then we do the action, right? So like, you know, life is happening. Our action is like, we're not waking up at 5 a.m. every day or like, you know, we, we snooze or like whatever we do. Then we have a mindset around it where we're saying like, hey, you know, 5 a.m., this is kind of tough. And then we talk to ourselves last and, and say and confirm that like, I'm not waking up at 5 a.m. Like, the, it's just, if we just like flip the order of that, life actually change changes. So the first thing that we should do is talk to ourselves. And I'm sure you've probably heard this word before, affirmations, right? And people think that they know what affirmations are, but I don't think we have like a, a clear understanding. So I'm going to use this as an opportunity just to break that down really quickly. Affirmations are not these, they're not just like these things that we write like little notes to ourselves and we repeat them daily. Affirmations are whatever you are currently repeating to yourself daily. So even wow. if it's not intentional and in po- and positive and, and empowering and like the, the most lit thing ever and it's all beautiful and like methodical, that doesn't mean that you don't have an affirmation. If you're saying I'm trying to decide whether I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. Every, every morning, that is your affirmation. 
if you switch that affirmation to I am waking up at 5 a.m. every day and you say that more, if you say it enough, I like, I, I, I like, I can guarantee this, right? If you say it enough, what happens is you actually end up reprogramming your mind. Like more importantly, you reprogram your subconscious mind because you repeated it so much that now you know it without having to think about it. And we do what habits are. Habits are the things that we do without thinking. So if we can talk to ourselves enough, we'll actually get to the point where we don't have to think. And then our new habit will be waking up at 5 a.m. every day. And this, the proof in this lies in the fact that advertising is a thing. Case in point, if I said, ba-da-ba-ba-ba, you know what comes after that, right? Right. I'm loving it. Right? Exactly. If I said nationwide, everyone knows what comes after that is on your side, right? And why do we know it? It's because we've heard it enough. And if billion-dollar companies understand affirmations what all it means is repeating something over and over and over again now what happens is we go to walgreens right and we go in there for i don't know like ibuprofen and then we're in the checkout lane and there's a coca-cola machine right next to us and for some reason we reach over and we just grab the coca-cola out of the machine because it's like convenient like now we're at the checkout line with the ibuprofen and the coca-cola when we didn't even come for coca-cola why do we grab the coca-cola not because the machine was just there and it was convenient it was because we've seen 45 years of coca-cola commercials over and over and over and over again and repeated to us to the point that we don't even think so now it's 2 a.m. and we're drunk and we want McDonald's, you know, it's like all it's, I mean, it gets, it gets very detailed, bro. But essentially what I'm saying is like, if we just talk to ourselves first intentionally in the way that we want to, what we'll do is we'll reprogram and override whatever our default is right now. And too many people have this default of like, I'm not a morning person. And it's like, where'd you even get that from? You're affirming that. And the reason why you're not a morning person is because you're not affirming that you are a morning person. So it's like, it's simple, but it's simple now because I've fortunately been able to put in the work and the self-discovery to, to figure that out. No, I get that. Yeah. I mean, you know, so, so many of us, uh, and you know, myself included where I'll, you know, I'll watch, uh, I'll binge watch some show late into the night and then mm-hmm. wake up at 11 and be like, yeah, I'm not a morning person. Well, I was like, no, you stayed yeah. up <laughs> until two o'clock watching. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know uh, Ozark or whatever. Yeah, and, and uh, so yeah, of course you're not gonna wake up in the morning. What like what 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 do you think was gonna happen? Exactly. Uh, uh, Tark, uh, man, I really appreciate having you on this podcast. This is so enlightening. Um, I'm very grateful that you took the time out to share all your insights. Um, hey, man, I'm, I appreciate you having me on where, here. So where are you right now with, because you said you're working at the Mind Body Online. Where's the music career? Mm-hmm. What, what's happening for you right now? Oh, yeah. So, the, you know, Mind Body, although it's a full-time job, to me, that's, that's my part-time job. You know what I mean? Uh, my full-time job is, is my music career. Um, and I'll put it this way. I essentially have like four burners on my stove. Okay, the first burner is music. The second burner is my charity foundation, which is directly funded by my music sales. The third thing is my lifestyle brand, which I like to call essentially like the Nike of personal development. It's called Infinite Collective. 
And then um, my fourth burner is real estate. And one of the things that I'm going to be doing in music is creating uh, passive income opportunities for rappers and athletes because there's like a huge gap in that space where like rappers and athletes don't really know what to do with their money. And we hear all the stories about them going bankrupt all the time and all this other stuff happening. So I actually wanted to provide a a solution through real estate because I've been working around real estate for the past three years now um, to create long-term passive income and like wealth, like generational wealth for rappers and athletes. That is so beautiful, man. So powerful is, uh, it, and, and, and such a spark of hope for, for people who have had similar childhoods and upbringing. Um, mm-hmm. the, your, your, how long have you and your girl been together? You said this is the, have you, are you engaged? Cause you said this is the last one. This is it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now nah, we aren't, uh, like officially engaged, but, um, to us, like, you know, we're, we're already engaged. We're already married. We know like what it is. We've been together for about two years now. So still like very young, but, um, I don't even get into a relationship unless I can see myself, you know, with someone for the rest of my life. And, um, thankfully, and in like the most humble way, the woman who has walked into my life most recently has, uh, changed it for the better in so many ways. And she's literally just, you know, a handcrafted angel for me. Tark, where can people find you? Plug all your stuff. Yeah. Um, it's usually the same everywhere. It's just Tariq Trotter. Tariq. So it's a T-A-R-I-K, last name Trotter, T-R-O-T-T-E-R. It's the same on Instagram, uh, Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok. Um, if music-wise, I'm on Spotify, my my stage name is just Tariq. There might be a few other Tariqs out there. I'm working on getting so popping that I'm the first one that pops up. Um, but yeah, if you just type in T-A-R-I-K, you'll find me on Spotify, iTunes, Tidal. I'm on Pandora, uh, SoundCloud, whatever whatever the case might be. I'm I'm pretty easily found, I believe. Um. And I ask this of all my guests. I always feel like there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Mm-hmm. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to that person? I would say to ask yourself this question. Do I truly, wholeheartedly, and undoubtedly know who I am? Not the person that your circumstances have shaped you into. Not the person that you are because of your parents, you know, like what's your favorite sports team and why? Probably because your, your dad or mom was, you know, that, that was their sport. Like, who are you? Right. Like you don't, one, don't kill yourself in general, but definitely don't, don't give up on yourself until you know who you are. And if you have any desire in you 
to kill yourself, it's because the current version of you needs to die off, not because your, your life needs to end. There's a, a new version of you, uh, a more efficient version of you, a better version of you, a more fulfilled version of you out there, but you got to pull yourself out of the mud that you're in. And, and while you're doing that, you're going to kill off this current version of you so that you can step into that new, that new version of you that's out there waiting for you. Tariq, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you to all the listeners out there who tuned in, who are rating it five stars, leaving comments on iTunes. And once again, this substitute, this podcast is not a substitute for you seeking real help, for you uh, going on that journey of self-discovery, for you uh, calling the 1-800 number if you need to or using one of the apps. There's so many mental health apps. There's so many free services for you. Uh, to use books to read, challenges uh, that that you know do the 100 day challenge. Uh, there's just so many. There's so many options out there for you to explore uh, before you make that decision. Thank you for tuning in, and once again, uh, you can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching. Thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching. I've been there. I'm still there and we're, we're still in the tunnel. But remember, like Tariq said, there is light not at the end of the tunnel, but in the tunnel. And yes, we will talk to you soon. Peace.